Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Credit Sites No More Risk Better podcast. In this episode, we provide a recording of our U.S. financials and special situations teams call from March 16, 2023, addressing issues facing the U.S. regional banking system. Jesse Rosenthal, Peter Simon, and Josh Kramer provide a detailed assessment of what led Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank to be put into receivership what other regional banks could be in trouble, and which ones are well-positioned to navigate this period of strained liquidity and financial market volatility. We hope you enjoy this special edition, and good luck navigating the choppy bond market waters out there. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Credit Sites emergency webcast on Silicon Valley Bank's failure and the resulting fallout amid this week-long bank liquidity crisis. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, my name is Jesse Rosenthal. I head up the U.S. financials team here at Credit Sites. I'll be joined today on the webcast by Peter Simon, senior banks analyst, uh, heading of coverage for the regional bank sector, and Josh Creamer, senior special situations analyst, uh, who is helping on the SIVP resolution and, and kind of going through and answering a lot of the questions or asking a lot of the questions about what we can expect in, in a resolution scenario. So just to start off with, I think it's important to kind of reiterate and go over the TikTok of, of what exactly has happened over the past week and specifically what exactly happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, because understanding the precipitous cause of the collapse and the proximate drivers of it, I think are extremely important when we're trying to think about and dimension uh, the all-important question of who might be next. And so we want to take a step back here and, and go through the 48 hours uh, of SVP's failure. So everything really kicked off last Wednesday night with the AK filing and the accompanying presentation and letter to uh, stakeholders announcing that the bank had completed the sale of its AFS portfolio and had planned to plug the resulting realized loss with an equity raise planned for the next day, split uh, mainly common equity raise, but also a preferred issuance. Notably, there was no conference call. This was purely a presentation posted to the SEC and the website. Thursday morning market, uh, the company files the prospectuses for the equity and preferred offering. Also Thursday morning, Silicon Valley Bank stock opens down 40% and just keeps sliding there. Rest of the day, crickets from management, didn't hear anything. Uh, had obviously, uh, news started to percolate that the equity raise was probably not going to go through, uh, and it was going to fail. And then 24 hours later on Friday, they were seized by California regulators. So now the big question that we keep coming back to here is 
was there actually a liquidity crisis at Silicon Valley Bank to precipitate this incredibly fast failure? And so to put some numbers around it, uh, with the presentation they posted on, on Wednesday night, the bank reported total deposits of $165 billion at the end of February. Based on where the deposit base was at the end of the year, that implies about $8 billion of outflows over the first eight weeks of 2023. Uh, the management commentary indicated that the outflows had been accelerating. Uh, so, you know, maybe it was, it was uh, a little bit more outsized in February versus January. But I think big picture, the point we want to make here is $8 billion of outflows. We're not going to say nothing, but should be manageable for things liquidity position. And indeed, if you look at what SVB's liquidity was at the end of 2022, it is not at all immediately obvious where that liquidity crunch came from. So they had about $14 billion of cash. They had almost $30 billion of already marked down available for sale security. So what gives? What, where did this liquidity crunch come from? Uh, they almost definitely still had cash on hand as of Wednesday night let alone, again, the $30 billion of available uh, securities. So this is what we kind of think w went down, and it is very much a case of compounding unforced errors on the part of the bank and bank management. So if we go back to, to the actual transaction they announced, the need to pull that ASS equity raise transaction really traces its roots back to just unmitigated asset duration buying in 2021 in particular. Um, and Buying asset duration is in a vacuum, not in and of itself a death knell. The problem was here is that the company, I think, completely botched their understanding of what the liability duration profile looks like. Uh, and, and a kind of easy way of framing this up is in the fourth quarter of 2022, we obviously saw interest rates were continuing to rise. What classic bank model of borrow short and lend long sees net interest margins contract when you start to see interest rates rise. Uh, but that was the case in Silicon Valley Bank in the fourth quarter. They saw a fairly sharp contraction in net interest margins. There's also the points about kind of parsing that Wednesday night transaction and when it actually would have accomplished it done. And it really would not have raised very much liquidity at all. It would have just been a couple billion basically from that common equity raise. It was, you know, one and a half percent of the total deposit base. So if you are facing the liquidity crunch, the transaction they were trying to pull Wednesday night doesn't really do anything. Um, rather, it was very much about earnings and it was very much about capital. And it was the need to rewrap these portfolio yields after buying all that duration and being underwater in order to prop up those margins, prop up the profitability. And as a result of that, in order to rewrap those portfolio yields, it needed to plug the equity hole that would be created by selling out of the AFS unrealized losses. So that was really the impetus and the point of that transaction. The problem lay in that the interpretation of it was clearly around liquidity concern and management. And we would put a lot of blame here. I think there's absolutely a world where we're sitting here today and SVB made it. Uh, the management did nothing, uh, at least publicly, to disabuse the market of that fact that this had very little to do with liquidity and was much more about earnings and the, uh, and, and the profitability problem. And there's also the point that I, I don't understand how they think that these equity rates would somehow still go ahead, no problem, when they 
woke up in the morning and the stock opened down 40%. And then so if we kind of think about how things probably went on Thursday, um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more uh, information coming out over the coming days, weeks, months, and, and probably years. Uh, there's, you know, probably going to be an HBO documentary on this in a few, in a few years. Uh, but this is how we kind of think Wednesday went down. When you, when you had the California seizure, they quoted $42 billion of withdrawal requests on Thursday. That's a liquidity crisis. That is at least 25% of the bank's entire deposit base. That's going to be very difficult for anything, including very well-run and functional ones to manage uh, 25 to 30% of the deposit base hitting the door in a single bank. And then if we go back to the liquidity sources, which again looked more than ample on Wednesday night before you had over 40 billion flooding, uh, flooding the zone, they couldn't cover it with the immediately available sources, i.e. cash and available for sale securities. But bank has lots of other assets. So, so what do you do? You probably have to tap into your health to mature portfolio. Um, obviously not great, but it is still, there's still value there. And these are still uh, no credit risk assets in general, treasuries and APCS. Yes, except for Silicon Valley Bank. The problem is once you sell HTM securities, the entire book gets marked to market. You can't pretend that you're intending to hold these securities to maturity at the same time that you're actively liquidating. And this again goes back to the specifics and the uniqueness of Silicon Valley Bank. The HTM portfolio was large enough and long enough duration that the embedded marks, when they had to take that mark-to-market loss, effectively wiped out the entire book equity of the bank. And we can see how much of uh, an outlier SPP was in this chart here on the right. And so, in essence, what you have now is you had this transaction on Wednesday night. You seeded the information discourse to rumor mongering, sparked this bank run. Now you have a true liquidity crisis. Now you have to tap your health to maturity portfolio. And then boom, now you have a capital crisis and you're insulted too. And the California regulators come knocking down. Finally, I just, you know, a quick step back and, and also thinking about, well, how does Silicon Valley Bank itself even get into the situation it was in Wednesday night in terms of needing to try to do this transaction to prop up profitability, uh, let alone, you know, botching it and, and sparking their own bank run. Uh, and I think this is another important point in terms of drawing a distinction between Silicon Valley Bank experience um, and risk management or very much lack thereof. And, and the rest of the peer group, as, as everyone's trying to get a handle on the, um, excuse me, on the, on the unfolding bank crisis. So first off, on the left-hand side, uh, SVB was a, a little bit of a fatal flaw from runaway growth. We can see just how much that security portfolio had exploded during the COVID era, in particular, accelerating in 2021 amid the explosion in liquidity events for, for tech and startup funds. Uh, everyone remembers the IPO and the SPAC boom there. Um, but again, it's it's just very, very stark to, to put it in contrast with the rest of the banking industry, just how much SIVB was an outlier in terms of that uh, deposit growth, which again, they were, they were holding securities portfolio here. And then secondly, it wasn't so much that they exploded in growth, it was what they chose to buy with that massive influx of cash. And, and on the right-hand side here, we're comparing the yield on that securities portfolio for SIVB and the rest of the peer group. And you can see that nice little hitch 
in uh, 2021 and 2022, where they were yielding more than the peer group. Um, that will generally happen when you're buying a lot more duration than everyone else. Uh, the problem tend comes, you get deposit outflows in 2022 as the Fed hikes rates. So you don't have an ability to really replenish and, and keep buying at current market yields. And you're immediately going in the wrong direction uh, for the yield on your on your securities portfolio. And you can see how you had this massive decoupling between SIBB and the rest of the banks at the end of 2022. Uh, for, for the securities yield book. So I, I think this really goes a very long way to telling the story of that big reach for duration to prop up earning yields during a period of time and, and immediately giving it back and, and just making yourself completely offside for, for effectively any interest rate, higher interest rate environment, let alone the fastest hiking cycle, easily a generation. So with that backdrop, I do want to hand it over to Peter Simon for some uh, quick remarks on the rest of the regional banks um, and, and also what we're seeing there, how we're thinking about it, and then also drawing a little bit of a compare and contrast again to SVB, which I think we hopefully just laid out as a very unique situation in terms of the downfall. So, so Peter, please take it away. Sure. Thanks, Jesse. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as I'm sure everyone uh, has been has been aware, you know, starting Friday and then over the weekend into Monday, um, the attention market's attention turned, you know, not just from the failure of uh, SVB and also Signature, but also, you know, also looking at uh, what concerns they had on the regional banks in general. Um, and you saw, uh, you know, significant market reaction, equity, equity markets across the uh, Debt capital structure as well. Um, so the first point that that uh, that we would make is that uh, you can't really paint uh, regional banks with a broad uh, a broad brush. Um, the term regional banks can be used by various market participants to refer to you know, hundreds of banks down to down to community banks that have you know less than ten billion in assets to U.S. Bancorp, which has close to seven hundred billion in assets. Um, so there's you know, a, a very significant, particularly in this situation, um, there's a very big difference between how that long tail of how this situation uh, impacts sort of the longer tail of smaller, uh, smaller and mid-sized banks uh, versus some of the largest regional banks. At Credit Sites, our active coverage is about uh, a dozen regional banks. It's the you know the largest, you know, broadly speaking, the largest regional banks. So that's sort of where our our coverage focus has been uh, in the wake of of Silicon Valley Bank, and our attention really, our immediate attention has been on the deposit profile. You know, even though these are large, solid banks that that we cover, for the most part, we you know immediately the market's concern is you know are are all there was a narrative that all deposits you know are going to flow out of regional banks and. You know, into the large banks. You know, I think some of that is, you know, maybe overstated. There may be some of that happening, but we we drilled down basically into the deposit profile of of the banks in our coverage, as well as a few others that have been, you know, that have been in in the news. You know, First Republic, uh, First Horizon, and Zions. And among the uh, the banks that that have 
the positive profiles that that look somewhat that share some characteristics with SVB. And just to back up a step, the, the characteristics that we were looking at were percentage of uninsured deposits. We looked at what types of deposits the banks have. So, you know, savings, money market versus uh, checking operational deposits, average size of balances, and then outflows over the course of 2022. Uh, we obviously don't have up to the, up to the minute uh, information on that and also deposit beta. And I would note that, you know, pretty much all of these metrics were metrics on which SVP was an extreme outlier, you know, as, as Jesse has pointed out. So basically within our coverage universe, the banks that we really have the least concerns about are those largest regional banks. So your Truist, U.S. Bank Corp, PNC, those three banks are all actually subject to the liquidity coverage ratio, have large, highly diversified deposit bases, customer bases, funding profile, and really uh, given their size and stability um, and reputation in the market, these are the types of banks that we actually think should be seeing deposit inflows if there is you know, widespread concern about uh, mid-size and smaller banks. You know, I think from, from that standpoint, they have much more in common with the money center banks actually than they do with the types of banks that fail. Um, we also view uh, Fifth Third in regions as having very, very solid deposit profiles. Um, kind of middle of the pack within our coverage universe, we had uh, Capital One, Citizens, M&T, and Huntington. No real concerns there, uh, but just a shade below uh, the first group I mentioned. And then, you know, the groups, the, the group that, you know, has a little bit of a, you know, lumpier deposit base, maybe less, less insured deposits. Within our coverage universe would be uh, Comerica and to a lesser extent, Key Corp. First Republic, which we haven't had in active coverage, does stand out among the kind of the remaining banks as you know, having very, you know, uh, very high uh, average deposit uh, account size um, and, you know, high uninsured uh, deposits. Obviously, uh, there have been, you know, uh, market concerns, uh, you know, about First Republic. Um, so that, that's sort of the, you know, the run through on the, on the deposit profile, but just to back up, you know, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. The, um, you know, the, the, the large regional banks, you know, we, we, we believe, you know, while there, there may be profitability pressures on deposit costs, uh, that could be amped up in the, uh, in the next few quarters should be, you know, largely from, from what we see. Uh, should be in a very solid position to uh, to withstand this moment. And with that, I don't know if you uh, want to pass it over to Josh. Yeah, that was great, Peter. Um, you know, Josh uh, has done a lot of work or and getting very much up to speed on the SIPB uh, bankruptcy case. So, you know, I, I, the, ourselves and the rest of our clients are, are kind of uh, split-minded here these days. Obviously, everyone is trying to get a handle on their existing portfolio. Unfortunately, and especially given the speed of SVP's collapse, there are also probably also a lot of SVP holdings in those same portfolios. So on one hand, you're trying to figure out what's going on with potential value and crystallized losses or hold on for the SVP collapse, while at the same time trying to stress uh, the rest of your actual going concern portfolio. So um, seeing a lot of questions here, kind of big picture around uh, asset liability management, duration, uh, hedging, what the bank did wrong, what it could have done better, 
Um, you know, what, what does this mean for banks if, if the borrow short, lend long model is broken? Um, and, and, and I think it's, it's worth again, kind of going back to, uh, ABCs of banking, um, and, and how it, and how it works. And, and so borrow short, lend long is definitional to a bank. There's, there's no way to get around it. Uh, what, what a bank brings is credit creation and duration and maturity transformation. Um, that is axiomatic to the model. Um, it is not a case of either modern finance, um, and financial engineering and that have to be this way. It's literally what banks have always done. And I've always liked to say banks are, are banking is the second oldest profession in human history. Um, so, so it's pretty definitional. What I think is worth kind of thinking about in terms of how badly SVB screwed it up and what they screwed up, right, is, is they were buying all this long duration as, uh, assets on the left side of the balance sheet. Now, no, um, and which frankly was, was always obvious financial statements. All you had to do is look at that, uh, hole in the HTM portfolio relative to any other bank and it stick, it stuck out like a sort of buying duration as a bank. Not in and of itself in a vacuum, a bad thing. Um, the key is trying to match as much as possible your assets and your liabilities on a duration side. You're always going to be long duration. Uh, again, that is definitional to the bank. Um, it's, it's in the sort of risk and the liquidity management that the devil's in the details. And so when we're talking about duration, I also, and apologies if this is kind of going back to the fundamentals and, and like I said, the building blocks of banking. Um, but it, it, it's worth kind of asking ourselves, well, what exactly is the duration of a bank's liability, right? What is the duration of a demand deposit? Um, because technically it is the shortest duration funding out there. Um, I can walk over to my bank today and take out my money. Um, that's not, that's not particularly long term. Um, practically speaking, because everybody has to have a bank and everyone has to pay their bills and, you know, have their auto debits at the end of the month. Practically speaking, there are generally long duration type of liabilities. I've had the same checking account that I pay off all my monthly bills with for 10 years. You know, that, that, you know, when a bank is kind of running its liquidity management, they should have some comfort that that's a long duration liability. And so bringing it back to NSIBB, I think the real problem here is that they tripled their balance sheet in a span of about two years. And very clearly, based on what they were buying on the asset side, we're effectively assuming that the duration of those deposits, the duration of the liabilities, were also very long. Uh, that is such an incredible leap of an assumption in my mind. I can't, I, I can't understand how it sort of got past any risk management function in terms of stress testing a liability model. Um, in terms of assuming that these are, these were long dated liabilities. And so I think that's where the duration question and mismanagement really comes in. And then by extension, we're really talking right back to what Peter was, was getting at, which is the quality of the deposit base, right? And by quality, we're effectively meaning stickiness. Why are those accounts and deposits at the bank? What are they doing for the customer? And what's the broader relationship there? Um, and, and on all those sort of fronts and characteristics, again, it seems pretty clear that the SIVB deposit base, and especially after having tripled in about two years, was, was a special case there. Um, and specifically, 
it was it was uh, not just characteristic of those deposits, but compounded error of SVD management treating these inflows again, mind-boggling in retrospect, but treating them as long-duration funding that would support going out and adding a ton of duration with long-dated NPS. Um, and then again, kind of fast forward to last week, you get a bank run and you have this highly, highly concentrated deposit base. And all of a sudden you realize what you thought were long duration liabilities and sticky relationships, uh, were much closer to, you know, kind of like one day Um, so I just wanted to make that broader point. Um, the asset liability mismatch is endemic to a bank. There is no way of getting around it. Um, but when you focus on, on answering the question or thinking about, well, what's the actual duration of a deposit funded bank's liabilities? Um, I think you, you can start to see just where SVB drove a giant hole through any, uh, traditional sense or semblance of a functional liquidity and duration risk management program for a bank. Um, so that, that's sort of my long winded view on this, this asset liability. Excuse me. This has a liability mismatch problem. Hey, uh, hey guys, it's Josh. I, I apologize. I apologize for getting cut off there. Um, would you like me to briefly go over our hold fill model? Uh, sure. And we'll actually, um, why don't you briefly introduce that? And then we'll, we'll go into a couple questions here from the, uh, from the chat on, uh, on the SIBB resolution. Absolutely. So in the SIBB resolution, we focus on the hold co as a box with very little or no residual value from the bank. And we look to five sources of value to drive recovery for bondholders and possibly preferred holders in the group. The first and most obvious source of value is whatever cash is on the balance sheet of that group. We know that as of December, there was $2.2 billion, but we, to our knowledge, have no updates as of now as to how that money has moved whether or not the FDIC has asked them to downstream it or did ask them downstream it, and then whether or not they actually did downstream it or enter into an agreement downstream it. The second source of residual value that we see is the net operating losses. In Washington Mutual, this was a huge source of value in two ways. There were operating loss carrybacks that got Washington Mutual refunds for essentially all of the taxes paid for the last five years, and then there were operating loss carry forwards which were then rolled into a new company the bankruptcy estate bought on exit, which we now know as Mr. Cooper. In this case, the operating loss carry back no longer exists. Our understanding is that the IRS has gotten rid of that concept, um, but operating loss carry forwards are still an opportunity to create value for the ongoing bankruptcy estate. The next two sources of value uh, require a lot more diligence, and I think are places where people can do interesting work. And that's the value of the venture capital arm and the value of the, uh, the investment bank. So that's SIVB capital and SIVB investment, both of which we think are outside of the bank holding group. And then kind of the, the final, um, the final bit of value that is, that, you know, it's worth looking at is the investment security book. As of December of last year, there were about $500 million of investment securities. When we look at the bank holding company filings, we know about a billion of those, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, about a hundred million of those was, were uh, investments in treasury securities. Um, but the other $400 million is up 
uh, the, the question. We've posited that they might be investments in venture companies, in venture funds run by the venture capital company, uh, which would we think might explain why there's a discrepancy between GAAP and uh, and uh, regulatory accounting, but that's still up in the air. You take that and you apply some costs for liquidation and liabilities, and then you put it against $3.3 billion of unsecured debt and $3.7 billion of preferred to get what ultimate recovery might be. So I think that that in general is our is our get to that, and I think I hand it back to you, Jesse, for wherever we're going next. Great. Thanks, Josh. Um, we, we had a couple questions here. I think theoretically, um, as we're thinking about potential kind of next dominoes and, and who's next, and we've got several questions here on, on FRC, which, which we'll address. Um, but kind of theoretically, if there had been bank level debt, um, obviously everything is at the whole code and that's what we focus on. In a theoretical situation, if there had been bank level debt at SIB today, how do you think that that would be sort of treated or, or thought about um, in, in this type of resolution scenario? So, uh, so at a bank level, uh, that basically goes into the FDIC resolution process as opposed to going into a bankruptcy type resolution process. The FDIC resolution process basically first says we pay the depositors, then we pay the unsecured creditors, then we pay the subordinated creditors, and then any leftover value of that goes to the equity holders. We've seen in historical uh, FDIC workouts that there is very rarely value for unsecured creditors. And uh, we were unable to find an example, though admittedly I, I have very little experience with any of these except for the large ones. We were unable to find an example of the FDIC providing any dividends, which are what they call these post-payments, to either subordinated or equity creditors. That's great. And we've got a, another one coming in, and, and I would actually love to hear the answer to this too. Um, and I think this is probably one of the, not the biggest questions for everyone thinking about SIBB Holco recovery. How and when do you think we will know the location and the actual dollar amount of the Holco cash balance? Um, I suspect that we will. So in Washington Mutual, we found it out the next day when they released an 8K alongside their ultimate bankruptcy filing. My expectation is that we will learn the ultimate cash balance um, on the day that FIVB Holdco filed for bankruptcy. In our most recent piece, we talked about why it hadn't filed yet. Our expectation is that the FDIC likely would prefer that they hold off to avoid a dispute between the bankruptcy court and the automatic say you get in bankruptcy and the desire for the FDIC to sell cleanly the assets of the bank company. And our expectation is that in order to not precipitate a fight, and again, this is purely a guesstimate coming from us as opposed to any deep underlying knowledge, in order to not precipitate a fight, our expectation is the whole coast holding off on bankruptcy as the FDIC process continues. But we expect to see it actually file for Chapter 11 sooner rather than later. Great. And and just one more quick one here. Uh, back to bank-level entity. Um, I think you and I are both basically assuming that that's a donut and a zero uh, for the whole co. Uh, but there is some question as to kind of whether that's the right approach. Uh, you know, the assets at the bank still have value and theoretically asset base is still larger than deposits at our last week. So any any thought there on whether it could actually be 
see some some recovery value in the Yankees. I think likely no, though I'm not going to say absolutely no. The reason why I think it's likely no is the FDIC's incentive is not really to provide a recovery to subordinated debt or recovery to equity. The FDIC's kind of mandate is generally to provide the depositors their money back and perhaps the unsecured creditors at the bank level. And so if we look at the FDIC's focus like that, it provides a generalized um, valuation. Valuation is the wrong word. It provides a framework for what they try to get out of the assets that they're selling. So as they get to more and more complicated and difficult to value assets, my suspicion is that the FDIC will become let more and more likely to take a haircut as long as they project the ultimate value to reach through the depositors, which means that if they aren't focused on reaching through the depositors and into the bank equity, and are rather focused on reaching through the depositors and maybe giving the unsecured claim holders at the bank, of which there are going to be some employees, people who provide services, things like that, are facing losses. Uh, if the FDIC isn't worried about getting money to the shareholders, and they're likely not, then it's unlikely that the resolution process is going to sell the assets for enough money to make it up there. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I would also just chime in here that uh, they're not wrong that the assets at the bank uh, exceeded the deposits of hard filing. Um, but I think we're forgetting about the debt at the OPCO. Um, you know, we know that the OPCO wasn't the bond issuer, but remember the liquidity, I'm not going to say crunch, the liquidity streams had already started in SVP last year as the cash burn for that startup, uh, startup client base started to accelerate. And so what that means is that SVP was tapping FHLP advances. So if I remember correctly, I think there's about 15 billion of FHLP debt at the OPCO. Um, and that's where you get sort of the equity wipe out. So that there's, uh, there's excess assets that cover the deposits. Um, you've got the FHLP stepping in, uh, right next to the block. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.